This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 26, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. After Joseph Tigano III was arrested for a marijuana grow operation, he regularly and vociferously asserted his right to a speedy trial as guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment. He sat in jail for nearly seven years before he went to trial and was convicted. Now the Second Circuit has thrown out that conviction with prejudice. But why isn't anyone being held to account for violating Mr. Tigano's rights? Clark Neely, vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute, comments. So it appears that Mr. Tigano and his father operated a a pretty substantial uh, marijuana uh, production operation in upstate New York, somewhere near Buffalo. Uh, They were arrested uh, by the Drug Enforcement Administration, prosecuted by federal authorities. Um, The Constitution, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, requires uh, that trials be uh, speedy. It's a speedy trial requirement. And there's no set in stone period of time. Um, Different cases will have different dynamics and different factors affecting how long it can take to go to trial. But basically, things are supposed to move expeditiously. They did not move expeditiously uh, in Mr. Tigano's case. And in fact, he was uh, arrested in July of 2008. And his trial finally commenced only in May of 2015, some six years, nine months, and 26 days later. And the question for the Court of Appeals after he was convicted uh, on five counts was whether his speedy trial rights were violated. Yeah, there was a there was a he was apparently required to undergo a series of evaluations in part because he requested a speedy trial. That's right. And he didn't just request a speedy trial. He insisted and invoked and insisted upon his speedy trial rights pretty much every time he got in front of a judge and they were just systematically ignored because that's just the way the system operates. Everybody within the system just seems inured. Um, they know that things move slowly. They know that there are delays after delays. And they don't really seem terribly concerned about the fact that this guy is sitting and rotting in jail the whole time. And one of the most incredible things about the case, as you note, is that he was ordered to undergo three separate competency exams, mental competency exams. Why? Because he kept refusing the plea offer that was made to him by the prosecutor and insisting on going to trial. And this is so unusual and struck the prosecutor as so preposterous. How would anybody turn down this very favorable plea offer that I've made and and accept the risk that comes to going to trial? You must be crazy if you do that. And we never know. We don't find out in none of the court opinions that I looked at, not the, the Second Circuit opinion that came out a couple days ago or any of the lower court opinions. Do we get to find out um, exactly what amount of time he was offered or you're not offered time, but essentially what, what kind of a plea offer he was made in terms of what they were going to demand that he plead guilty to versus what he would have been facing if he went to trial. But we do know that he and his father were both indicted they lived in the same house. They're both indicted on six count indictments with very serious charges, including a distribution of over or, or the production of over a thousand marijuana plants, um, conspiracy to distribute weapons charges. So we're looking at probably in the nature of 15 to 25 or more years if they if they get rung up on all those counts. What we don't know is what was the plea offer. And I'll bet it was real favorable and I'll bet everybody was shocked that he wouldn't take it. And it was so shocking, in fact, that as you say, uh, it was the basis for ordering three separate competency exams, all of which found that he was competent to stand trial. So what is the, um, what guidelines do prosecutors and judges use if there is no uh, clear cut rule about what constitutes a speedy trial? 
So the Supreme Court laid out a four-part balancing test in a 1972 case called Barker v. Wingo. And what you look at is the length of the delay, the reasons for the delay, whether the defendant has been consistent in asserting his speedy trial rights and whether the defendant has been prejudiced by the delay. And of course, in this case, all of those factors line up uh, in favor of Tigano, in fact, in a way that's quite striking. Um, the Second Circuit noted that this delay of nearly seven years was the longest one in the history of the Second Circuit, as best as they could tell. Um, the government, as it typically does, accepted no responsibility whatsoever for any of the delays, which the Second Circuit found to be preposterous, because in fact, the government was absolutely responsible for many of the delays, but it took responsibility, or it, it accepted responsibility for none of them and said that uh, it was all everybody else's fault except its own, but that was preposterous. Uh, the uh, t t defendant, Takano, repeatedly and vociferously asserted his speedy trial right. In fact, the, the, ve the very assertion of his speedy trial right became the basis for even more delays as, as the, the judge kept ordering more competency exams. And then in terms of the prejudice, the defendant, of course, he was prejudiced. He, he rotted in jail, um, which apparently is a lot worse. So he was held in local jails for most of the seven years, which apparently is even worse than being in a prison because local jails don't have the same kinds of facilities and programs that a prison would. So uh, being in jail is even worse uh, than, than being in a prison, and that's where he spent most of the seven years. This is an appalling and jaw-dropping case, and the only thing you can be absolutely certain of is that nobody involved in this tr terrible miscarriage of justice will be held to any uh, uh, responsibility. There will be no accountability on the part of anybody who caused this miscarriage of justice. That you can be sure of. Why wouldn't we know uh, as a matter of public record uh, if, this went, if this went on for so long? Long and went up to the uh, Second Circuit. Why wouldn't we know what was in that plea deal? Well, plea negotiations are typically confidential. Uh, as but it seems like a material thing to the case. Well, I'm not sure that it is, actually. I don't think you need to know what was in that plea uh, offer in order to determine whether or not uh, the defendant's uh, speedy trial rights were violated. Uh, and I could imagine that the government doesn't want uh, anybody to know, because here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that the, uh, the essentially what he was offered in the plea agreement was not a slap on the wrist, but uh, was a very small fraction of, of what he, you know, what was in the indictment. We do know that his father uh, uh, took a plea to a single count of, um, of manufacturing, I think it was less than 50 uh, marijuana plants. And so we don't know how much time he got, but I'd be surprised if it was more than a couple of years. And it's entirely possible that um, uh, the defendant, the, the son, uh, Tigano in this case, passed up a similarly favorable deal. We do know that uh, that the disparity between what a defendant can be facing if if uh, he or she uh, goes to trial and loses versus what they are offered as a plea um, can be enormous. Um, there was a case, the famous case of Aaron Schwartz in Boston. Uh, he's a young man that uh, he was an internet genius, and he, long story short, he he snuck into a computer closet, hooked up a program to download articles from an academic database. The federal government charged him with 13 counts of computer related. Uh, uh, crimes. He was looking at 30 years in prison and a one 
$1 million fine. Um, he hung himself. It was so angry. He was, uh, it caused him such anxiety that he ultimately hung himself and took his own life. Um, and in, in defending its own conduct and, and trying to exculpate itself from essentially pressuring this internet genius into suicide, the government said, yeah, but we offered him six months. So we do know that there's precedent for the proposition that the government will charge you with crimes um, that would potentially result in a 30-year sentence and offer you a six-month plea deal. Um, I don't. I wouldn't guess that the disparity was that big in this case, but we know that uh, it can be huge. And I can well imagine a prosecutor in this case thinking to himself, uh, you have to be crazy to not take the deal that I'm offering. And I don't think that there was an issue of mental competency here, but there may have been a failure on Tigano's part to appreciate the extraordinary cynicism and moral corruption of a system that will threaten to put you in jail for decades if you insist on your trial right, but offer you the opportunity to get out in a couple of years if you take the deal. Our criminal justice system has largely become one of coercive plea bargaining, and, and that has displaced the criminal jury trial by and large, and it's a disgrace. So and when you combine... Uh, the idea of, you know, these very hefty sentences that could be handed down if you decide to go to trial and lose and the very, the relatively light sentences that would be handed down in the form of a plea bargain and the relatively, uh, the relative ease with which a judge or a prosecutor can work and move to delay the date of your trial. Uh, th this is a very serious problem. And of course, the Sixth Amendment goes to the core of uh, innocent people uh, or even guilty people being unnecessarily harangued by a justice system for no good reason. Absolutely right. And there's actually a name for what happened in this case. It's very well known, known among criminal defense attorney. Um, this is called the trial penalty. And what a trial penalty is and what a trial penalty means is this is the penalty that is inflicted on people who presume to insist on what our colleague Trevor Burris felicitously calls bespoke justice, which is to say a criminal jury trial protected by the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. Very few people insist on jury trials in our criminal system. Actually, about 97 percent of federal criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain. Why is it that only a very tiny handful of people um, choose to insist on their right to a jury trial? Are they just not interested? Absolutely not. So few people insist on their jury trial right or exercise their right to a jury trial because of the trial penalty. And the trial penalty is the whole constellation of, uh, of prejudices and harms and, and uh, paybacks that uh, can be brought to bear on a defendant who refuses a plea bargain as Mr. Tigano did in this case. And it can be everything from letting you rot in jail for years like, like he was allowed to do to um, uh, you know, re-indicting you with even more counts so that you face even more time. Uh, the list goes on and on, but the trial penalty is a very real thing and it is probably one of the most important dynamics in our criminal justice system because um, what we have essentially is a wood chipper criminal justice system that processes people uh, through the system as quickly and efficiently as possible. And in order to do that, you have to persuade them not to exercise their right to a jury trial because nothing slows down a criminal uh, proceeding like a jury trial. Um, they want to plead them and get them on their way to prison. Um, if there are no guidelines for prosecutors and judges other than the, this, the term speedy trial and maybe some precedent uh, way back when, how would someone hold these people accountable? Uh, it's a great question. Unfortunately, the answer is it's almost impossible. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has held uh, that prosecutors are completely immune from civil liability. 
uh, and so are judges. And so notwithstanding the egregious misconduct in this case, notwithstanding the complete indifference uh, to this man's uh, speedy trial rights, notwithstanding the fact that uh, he rotted in jail for nearly seven years uh, before getting his constitutional right to a jury trial, um, which is an absolute miscarriage and a travesty, the one thing you can be absolutely certain of is that no one involved in causing that miscarriage um, will be held accountable in any meaningful way. That much you can count on. Why? Because prosecutors, by and large, do not uh, discipline their own. Um, they, as, as I mentioned earlier, they accept no responsibility for what happened um, in this case. Uh, and uh, judges uh, are, are, you know, they don't, by and large, uh, face any kind of internal discipline either, and it's impossible to sue either one of them. So everybody involved in this miscarriage is going to get off scot-free, um, but the good news is at least that Mr. Tigano finally gets to get out of jail after serving probably more time um, than he should have been sentenced to, even if he were guilty of the crimes, um, but at least he gets out now. If the prosecutor were determined by his bosses to be uh, to have to have been uh, negligent or malicious or been actively working to violate Mr. Tagano's rights and fired, would that prosecutor then be liable? No. Um, but it's a fantasy question anyway, because we know that that just never happens to, to federal prosecutors. How do we know that? Um, well, take the, the Ted Stevens, Senator Ted Stevens prosecution. Um, this involved uh, uh, the prosecution of a sitting senator who was uh, convicted by a jury, but then it came out that the prosecutors had engaged in extraordinary misconduct, extraordinary and willful misconduct, resulting in the greatest ethical uh, scandal in the history of the Department of Justice. Um, a, a special uh, uh, investigator who wrote a 500-page report recommended or came with an recommending that two of them, uh, the prosecutors, be themselves criminally prosecuted. Um, they weren't um, because not all of the elements were met. But it was terrible misconduct. The worst um, penalty that any of the prosecutors or the, the worst discipline that any of the prosecutors in that case, case faced was a transfer to another office. So the idea that the misconduct in this case would result in any sort of meaningful punishment or discipline on the part of the Department of Justice is a complete fantasy. By and large, the DOJ insists on accountability and consequences for citizens, but not for its own prosecutors. That's how the Department of Justice rolls. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.